Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, George. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club program with Dr. Nancy Gwynn, Director of Smithsonian Libraries. And I too want to welcome you to our fabulous new home. We're having such a great time in this building. Now you can find the club on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. As George said, I'm Evelyn Dillsaver, Chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors and your moderator for today's program. And to introduce our distinguished speaker, I'm now pleased to introduce Kay Dryden, a former colleague of mine and also a former member of the Smithsonian Library's Advisory Board, who currently serves now on the board of the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. That Smithsonian Research Center collaborates with the San Francisco State University to preserve our San Francisco Bay through research and education. And Ms. Dryden has a fabulous um, work history. She's CEO of Energy Dispute Solutions and the former general counsel of Charles Schwab, Del Monte Foods, and Lucasfilms, all, of course, not at the same time. So please welcome Kay Dryden to the podium. Thank you, Evelyn. The Smithsonian is a vast enterprise. 19 museums, nine research centers, 21 libraries, and the National Zoo. It's loaded with secrets. For one thing, most of us are only familiar with one or two of the museums and are hardly even aware, virtually unaware, of the Smithsonian's preeminent role in scientific research throughout the world, vital to our everyday lives. Not to mention, libraries at the Smithsonian, a scientific research center right here in San Francisco Bay area, secrets abound. I have the great pleasure tonight of introducing to you Dr. Nancy Gwynn. She's the very talented director of the Smithsonian Libraries, and she has been there since 1997. She is an Oxford Fulbright Scholar. She holds a doctorate in American Civilization from George Washington University, and a master's in library science from University of Michigan. And most importantly, she's an internationally recognized leader in the world of libraries. And not to mention, she's one half of a library's power couple. <laughs> Her husband, John Cole, who is here with us tonight, uh, is the official historian of the Library of Congress. With, with Dr. Gwynn's inspiring leadership, the Smithsonian Libraries is spearheading some ambitious initiatives, like putting into the palm of your hand all the entire knowledge base that we have about every plant and animal on planet Earth, and at the same time, preserving and conserving for our wonderment and delight such things as the precious manuscripts of Galileo and Isaac Newton, and even the first Wonder Woman comic book. <laughs> Culture, art, science, it's all in the Smithsonian. Seriously amazing. This evening, Dr. Gwynn will delve into the fascinating history of the Smithsonian, share with us inspiring stories, and tell us some of its intriguing secrets. Please welcome Dr. Nancy Gwynn. We keep secrets, we share secrets, we hide secrets, we secret things we want to keep hidden. Basically, it's something that other people don't know. And tonight I'm going to share some things you may not know about the Smithsonian. Did you know, for example, that our founder, James Smithson, an English scientist who died in 1829 was actually illegitimate. (laughs) 
that his skeleton resides in a sarcophagus in the Smithsonian's first building, fondly called the castle. Alexander Graham Bell, at that time a Smithsonian regent, learned that this sarcophagus was going to be moved from its Italian gravesite in Genoa, and so he went over there and he got it. (laughs) And he brought it back. And even if you knew that, did you know that James Smithson's personal library still exists and is kept intact by the Smithsonian libraries? You can see, well, you can't because it isn't there. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) There it is. It's up there. You can see his signature. The library includes a copy of Smithson's cookbook with page numbers of his favorite recipes penciled in the back, things like beef collops and pulled fowl, It also had a copy of his handwritten will. While Smithson left his estate first to his nephew, who died six years later, and then to the nephew's heirs, there weren't any, he then said it should come to the United States of America to found at Washington under the name the Smithsonian Institution, an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge. Smithsman attended Pembroke College in Oxford. He never married, he had no children, and he lived a peripatetic life, traveling widely in Europe during a time of great turbulence and political upheaval. He was in Paris during the French Revolution, and we know that because we have a letter he wrote to a college friend dated 1794 and he was later imprisoned during the Napoleonic Wars. At one point, a question even arose as to whether his sarcophagus actually contained his skeleton. And it did, in a box in the base. Analysis revealed Smithson to be about five foot six inches tall, that he smoked a pipe, and judging by the development of his upper body, He may have been an avid fencer. His friends were many of the great scientific minds of his age, and like them, he believed that the pursuit of science and knowledge was the key to happiness and prosperity for all of society. So here's another secret. How did the United States receive the money from Smithson's estate? Well, with some difficulty... President Andrew Jackson sent diplomat Richard Rush to England to shepherd the paperwork through the Court of Chancery. Do any of you read Dickens? Have you read about the Court of Chancery? (laughs) It's not an easy task. Eleven boxes of gold coins amounting to over $500,000 were carried on shipboard back to the U.S. to be melted down and put in the U.S. Treasury. But we nearly lost it again when the Treasury invested the funds in some Arkansas bonds that went belly up. (laughs) Fortunately, the U.S. Treasury replaced those funds. Now, meanwhile, Congress debated about what kind of institutions Smithson had in mind. And in that debate, they determined that his name could have been put on an observatory an agricultural school and experimental farm, a museum of natural history, a teacher's training school, and lectureships. Some even wanted to use the funds to construct a great national library. You may uh, realize that at the time, the Library of Congress was just a small legislative library in the front of the Capitol building. Instead, when it was clear that Congress couldn't decide, why does that sound familiar? (laughs) A board of regents was created, and Congress gave it to them to decide. And the regents promptly hired Joseph Henry, 
the nation's foremost scientist as the first secretary of the Smithsonian, and they gave it to him to decide. Well, Henry saw the Smithsonian becoming a great scientific institution, and we were off and running. Congress also authorized the Smithsonian to spend $25,000 a year on purchasing books. Henry wanted to build such a library, a scientific library. He agreed with Charles Darwin, who felt that the cultivation of natural science cannot be efficiently carried on without reference to an extensive library. But Henry didn't have anywhere to put it. So he first decided to spend the bequest on building a suitable building that would solve multiple purposes, the one we know today as the Smithsonian Castle. One wing held the library. His second task was to begin a publishing program called Smithsonian Contributions to Knowledge, These would show the curious that America could conduct valuable research and publish results to join the global network of scientific communication. And his third task was to direct his first assistant, Spencer Fullerton Baird, to begin building a distribution list which would stimulate other scientific societies to send their publications to the Smithsonian. That's one of the deliveries. (laughs) (laughs) Thus, the Smithsonian's International Exchange Service was born. The building, the publications, and the exchange service still continue today. The Smithsonian's library quickly began to grow with many publications coming from abroad as paper-bound journals, issues, or volumes that were bound in paper and required a sturdier binding. The volumes were housed in the west wing of the Smithsonian Castle Building, fortunately, as it turned out. Why? Because that nemesis fire came to alter the future of the Smithsonian Library, just as it affects us today. Witness the recent news about Notre Dame. First came a fire at the Library of Congress on Christmas Eve in 1851, which destroyed two-thirds of that library's collection, including the books that Thomas Jefferson had given to rebuild it after the British had burned the Capitol in 1814. Congress voted to rebuild and expand the library space in the Capitol building and equip it with what was then the latest technology, wrought iron bookshelves, (laughs) knowing it would stand empty for a time. And second, two workmen repairing the roof of the castle in 1865 instead accidentally set it on fire. Now, supposedly the building had been made fireproof, but the roof and the interior were not. So the fire burned down through Joseph Henry's office, engulfing all of the early records of the institution, as well as all of the items from the Smithson estate, except for his personal library, which was housed at the other end of the building with the rest of the then Smithsonian's library. Scary, right? Well, knowing that his library would continue to grow, Henry sought a solution and he found it in those vacant library rooms in the Capitol building. He and the Librarian of Congress agreed to move the Smithsonian's library to the library in the Capitol, but he made sure that the collection would remain separately housed and be known as the Smithsonian Deposit. Further, the two agreed that the Library of Congress would hire staff specifically to register each volume that was sent, that the Smithsonian could call back any volumes that its scientists needed, and even that the Smithsonian could call back the entire collection if it reimbursed the Library of Congress for the cost of binding and shelving. Congress codified that agreement into law, which incident, incidentally is still on the books. 
It allows the Smithsonian to have unique borrowing privileges from the Library of Congress, not just for deposit books, but any other book needed. So this arrangement continued for close to 90 years, with one exception. The Smithsonian research requires a library, and Smithsonian scientists just couldn't do without one close at hand. So the Smithsonian's second leader, yes, Secretary Spencer Fullerton Baird, himself a distinguished ornithologist, donated his large collection to the Smithsonian to become our working library. And we began to request two copies of each volume through the exchange service, one for us and one for the Library of Congress. Now this service, albeit lessened somewhat by time and technology, continues to this day. The Smithsonian Library houses about two million print volumes and continues to receive thousands each year right alongside our growing digital collections. But enough about the secrets of history. Now remember that a secret is something that you don't know. So here's another modern secret we certainly don't want to keep. The Smithsonian doesn't just exist on the East Coast. It's relevant to you right here in California. Did you know, for example, that the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center operates a laboratory at the Romberg-Tiburon Center, the only coastal research facility located on San Francisco Bay, or that 24 museums in California are official Smithsonian affiliates, stretching from the Museum of Sonoma County in Santa Rosa to the San Diego Air and Space Museum, or that there are 10 animals from California living in the National Zoo, (laughs) including this river otter. In fact, California-related collections reside all over the Smithsonian's 19 museums and nine archives and research centers, containing over 140 million items from art to zoology, which include a collection just received of 20 million parasites. (laughs) They fit in a box like this. Now, I'm often told that people don't realize the Smithsonian has a library. So that also appears to be a secret. But we're trying very hard not to keep it. In fact, there are now 21 specialized libraries that serve the Smithsonian, the public, the nation, and the world. Well, so what, you might say. Now, if you think about all the plants and animals in California, you should be thinking about me, or rather about the Smithsonian Library's global project called the Biodiversity Heritage Library along with 44 other natural history museums, botanical gardens, and universities worldwide, the Smithsonian Libraries is trying to capture every publication that we can about the world's biodiversity and put it online, freely available to anyone who wants it, anywhere in the world. The digital collection now houses over 56 and a half million pages, or over 242,000 volumes of biodiversity-related publications. And that's not all. Biologists who are out in the field collecting specimens keep what are known as handwritten field notebooks. We also are digitizing those And through the Smithsonian Transcription Center, we invite members of the public, just like (laughs) y'all, to help transcribe them into easily read and searched what you might call still typewritten fonts. Now, if you want to help with that program, you can go on the web to transcription.si.edu. The Transcription Center contains not just field notebooks, 
but all kinds of manuscript material that we want to have transcribed. I've skipped this one, which shows how the BHL is a global consortium. So last week, for example, I saw that in the tiny notebook of Vernon Bailey, there on the, your left, he was a California naturalist who wrote down his trip agenda on a trip to California in 1911, but he'd also jotted down the genus and species he saw, sometimes while riding horseback. And he also pressed small plants he found in the pages to study later, like those ones in the middle. There are other interesting things to do on the transcription site, by the way. I also saw an opportunity to transcribe the inscriptions on the Epiphone guitar owned by James Brown. This one here. It's signed on all four sides and features messages of praise, thanks, and birthday wishes by notable people like Ozzy Osbourne. But those are not the only reasons for Californians to be interested in the Smithsonian and its libraries. Suppose you're a rare plant botanist like Aaron Sims, who works for the California Native Plant Society at the Smithsonian Center on San Francisco Bay that I mentioned earlier. He's constructing an online inventory of all the rare and endangered plants of California. He needs the original descriptions of rare plants, which are only found in the historical literature. And he says that he uses the BHL, the Biodiversity Heritage Library, almost daily. It's where Aaron discovered a rare and endangered species, which he named the Ridgeway Rail, after Robert Ridgeway, who was the first full-time curator of birds at the Smithsonian, and the man who's, by the way, pioneering work on color, color in bird skins, in fact, led to our modern Pantone system. Aaron told us, quote, I'm pretty sure I exclaimed, this is amazing, out loud, as soon as I discovered the BHL. Or suppose you're interested in that large building in San Francisco here called the Palace of Fine Art which was built for the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition. Now, if you sat at your computer, clicked on the Smithsonian's collection search center, you'd find there are thousands of records and images of different kinds of objects, books, and documents for that palace. I expect the best collection about that fair is actually here somewhere in San Francisco, but the Smithsonian Library's World's Fairs collection, which covers fairs and expositions from the 1851 Crystal Palace in London to the 1964 New York Exposition, can give a researcher ways of comparing World's Fairs and discovering trends in technology, women's history, manufacturing art, and many other subjects. And every year we have fellows who come to the Smithsonian Libraries just to use the World's Fair collection in their books and dissertations. Now, I mentioned the history of manufacturing. How does that relate to California? Well, that's where our historical trade catalog collection comes in. We have about 480,000 items in that collection which consists of manufacturing catalogs, retail catalogs, company descriptions, broadsides, advertising circulars, all printed publications that cover about 30,000 companies active from the late 19th century to around 1950. For museums, this collection is a goldmine of detailed information about objects in the collection, their manufacturing, advertising, and use. So whether you want to hear about light fixtures, Studebakers, assembly lines, sewing machines, or even coffins, this is the place to go. 
And for popular culture, we even have the first issues of the Wonder Woman comic book, along with a manuscript collection of her creator, William Thurston. Finally, the Smithsonian is all about education and outreach, and so is the libraries. We have our own education specialist, and she's been developing some exciting initiatives that use illustrations from the library's collections. She works with students in the District of Columbia Public Schools, Smithsonian educators, and others to introduce them to the libraries and how our content can be used to enhance school curricula. So to conclude, I'll simply say that the Smithsonian Institution and its libraries have something for everybody, no matter where you live, work, or play. This uh, was made by Smithsonian staff. It's a representation of our Smithsonian star um, to celebrate our uh, anniversary a few years ago. And that little group of people in the red in the middle are our librarians. (laughs) We consider ourselves at the heart of the institution. (laughs) So come to the Smithsonian Libraries and, or visit one of our local affiliates or come to Washington to see for yourself all we have to offer. I guarantee that you'll leave wanting more. I want to thank Kay Dryden, George Dobbins, Evelyn Dillsaver, and all those who've worked to make this occasion possible. And now I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. Wasn't that a wonderful presentation? Wow. The uh, slides were fabulous. Great color Uh on the slides. You know, I was reading about uh, the Smithsonian to prepare for this. Um, What you didn't mention is they have a book, the classic book on beer and brewing. I mean, I, I wanted to know, how many books do you have in that collection uh, we on have beer and brewing? In, on beer, oh, well, I couldn't give you a number, <laughs> but the reason that we have it is because the Smithsonian has hired a curator of beer <laughs> and brewing in the American History Museum. So, wow. you know, suddenly we're into a whole new topic. That happens to us all the time. And we have to scramble sometimes to keep up so we have the resources that person will need. So that's a, that, it's a good question, which is how do you prioritize what you're going to focus on and what to go after next in terms of collections? <coughs> we, as mentioned, we had 21 libraries, and each of those libraries has a staff that includes skilled librarians. And they are the ones who work directly with the curators and the staff of the Smithsonian. So they keep a very close um, touch on what kinds of research are going on and what the plans are for the future. And then they tell the central uh, administration, and then we know where to go with our collecting patterns. And how long does it usually take uh, for something like that if a new topic comes up? Well, it doesn't take very long. I mean, we can usually um, build at least a small collection in a hurry. Uh, And, of course, a lot of things are available through interlibrary loan still or or are digitized, and we can get them very quickly from other libraries and uh, institutions that have digitized their collections. We are part of several consortia that we work with, and we all help each other, and that's how we stay ahead of the game. That's great. In fact, one of the questions um, from our audience is, how much of the Smithsonian's collection is on exhibit at any one time? Oh, the Smithsonian's. That means the whole whole Smithsonian, the whole 140 million objects. Um, Well, it's a small percentage, as you can imagine, and you have to realize also that just like we have 20 million parasites, which are never going on display, uh, I hope, 
Um, we, we have many uh, copies of certain kinds of items like um, Native American baskets or um, actual uh, money uh, in the National Numismatics Collection. So uh, you wouldn't want to see all of the collection because it would just be duplicates yeah. or what would look like duplicates. So we pick special things that... Um, that fit certain themes that the curators want to highlight. And then they pick to go with that exhibit the most special things that the Smithsonian has. That's great. And so this individual also wanna know how can how can individuals like ourselves donate to the museum if we have a collection? <laughs> Uh, well, we hope that you'll first of all write and tell us about it before. It's <laughs> a good idea. Before it uh, lands on our doorstep, <laughs> uh, that has happened. By the way, the libraries once received a big box, and when we opened it up, it had uh, World War II mementos, like a German helmet, and uh, I think it, there was a. Uh, um, a knife of some sort, and some other things, and no way to return it. There was no return address. So they knew it was something that we would want, right? So we hustled and turned it over to the American History Museum and said, you deal with it. (laughs) But we got books like that all the time, too, uh, unsolicited gifts. And we select from those what we want for the collections, and then we have um, disposal routes to send to other institutions so that the books are still valuable and can be used by others. Yeah. If, if there was a, a collection you would want, what would that be? Uh, <laughs> a collection we would want. Well... Um, I think we would want to have a scientific collection, a historical scientific and technology or technology collection because we we are all about science and five of our libraries are science libraries. Um, we have one of our um, rare book libraries is a history of science and technology. Right. So um, those sometimes those kinds of books are hard to get because they're not necessarily things people would save as specialties. And so um, we're always looking for that kind of collection. So if you, any of you in the audience have those kind of books, <laughs> please remember. Yeah, but let us know first before yes, you send it. Let us know. <laughs> Uh, what are the most visited libraries today that you, within your collection? Oh, the most visited library today. Um, probably this year, I would say it's the library of the National Museum of African American History and Culture mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. it's obviously the new kid on the block. Um, it does have a fabulous library. Uh, which we had started to collect for long before the building was built. When was it the building opened this year? This last year? Uh, no, ago? two years. Two ago. years ago. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's still very new, and people still want to um, want to visit it and visit it a lot. Yeah, that's great. Um, what other organizations? have collections like yours, or is Smithsonian the only ones? In the Library of Congress, right? Well, it depends on if you're talking about object collections or book collections. We're certainly not the biggest book collection in the world, or even in America. The university libraries um, have much bigger collections than we do, but um, academic libraries also support classwork, and so they have... uh, they have volumes um, sometimes in duplicate because they're supporting a lot of students. Uh, we, for example, don't collect um, in literature much at all. Okay. Uh, we have a few things because they drift in, and a few, of them, a few of them are valuable for one reason or another. But, um, but there's no program in the institution that, that really focuses on literature, so we just don't collect in that area. 
That's interesting. Well, along those lines, you mentioned the universities. Many colleges are rethinking their libraries since so much is now online. What do you think the future of libraries will be for these universities? I think the future of libraries is still very strong because not people tend to think that everything has been digitized, but actually only about 1% or 2% of uh, publications have been digitized. And so um, there's, we're still taking in you know, several thousand books a year. Um, big university libraries taking in much more than that because the, much of the world still publishes in print. So, but along with that, we consider digital publications just another format like um, microfilm or video or something that we collect um, alongside of everything else that, that we collect in the way of print publications. So um, it's the, the thing about digital is you've got to have the platforms to make it accessible and searchable, and that um, is a little more difficult uh, and perhaps a little more expensive than uh, general book collection. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Right, right. And, of course, that naturally leads, if you've got a digital collection, how do you back up your work? Well, we're fortunate that we have um, a Smithsonian office called the Office of the Chief Information Officer. And they are the ones who do the backing up and uh, taking care of the digital files. Uh, They've been doing that for a long time. And um, we are, for example, one of the places that has the entire file of the Biodiversity Heritage Library, which is huge. But the institution has committed to being one of the places that will take care of those files, those digital files, now and into the future. So uh, we're very fortunate that we have that kind of support in the institution. Well, along those lines then, as libraries become more digital mm-hmm. and uh, universities, how does that change the role of a librarian from when you, you started out and what you're doing today? Because it's, well, yeah. it's still a career, it's still a profession. Oh, it's, it's a big career and a big profession. Um, and nowadays, uh, we want to hire people who come in with those kinds of digital skills so that they can um, actually lead the museum people. Many of them don't have the kinds of skills that the librarians do. So we are resource people for that, and we give classes for uh, museum staff and what's available to them because many of the times they just don't know. Um, so I've wandered away from your original question, so <laughs> not quite sure what it, what well, it was. Well, it was just about the career of uh, the oh. librarian today and what, what additional skill sets do they need to actually do Well, that? they need to come in. Uh, we, we very seldom hire somebody right out of library school, for example, because we need people with experience and uh, expertise so they can be slotted right into our uh, services. Some of our libraries only have one or two people in them, so they are on the spot and need to be able to um, handle any kinds of questions that come along and also be able to teach the uh, museum staff what is possible for them to get. Um, so we hire experienced people, but um, library school curricula have changed immensely, uh, certainly since I was in library school, when um, our introduction to the electronic world was a list of terms that on a piece of paper that they thought we might need to know when we took our first job. So, you know, COBOL and... uh, (laughs) 
Uh, and that was that was my introduction. Um, but nowadays, uh, there's many courses in library schools that um, teach those kinds of skills to the students. And I'm on um, advisory board for the University of Michigan Library School, and I see what they're doing, and I am just astounded um, at the um, the kinds of classes they have, at the opportunities that the students have to learn this stuff, because uh, it's really quite remarkable and way beyond me, I might say. Uh, yeah, I just was with my grandkids this weekend, and it's amazing. At three, they're swiping everything on the, even the TV. They're swiping the yeah. TV. Um, yeah. That's okay. why. That's why I have peeps. Yeah. <laughs> I have people who can do these things. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant peeps, the ducks. Okay. Um, so it's a long history, and you told one deep dark secret, which was the uh, potential illegitimate. Founder. Yes. What other deep dark secrets exist <laughs> in the Smithsonian? Deep dark secrets. Um, well, uh, at one point, uh, there was a mystery novel that came out that uh, spoke about a tunnel underneath the mall from the castle to uh, the um, Natural History Museum. And um, that figured very largely in that novel. Well, there is, in fact, a tunnel that goes from the castle to natural history. It, but it's a steam tunnel that carries um, the uh, HVAC for uh, the buildings. Um, and I suppose one could walk through it or maybe crawl through it. Uh, but uh, it's not something that is... Um, a normal passageway, shall we yeah. say. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so that tunnel, I think, is an, another deep, dark deep, secret. Deep secret. Um, there also used to be, uh, in the very early days, Joseph Henry and his family lived in the castle. Uh, and uh, we had, for a while, if you recall, the castle has these towers, and we had curators who lived up in those towers. So um, if you re can think about the fact that the institution was founded in 1846 and Washington was kind of a malarial swamp at that time. Well, it still so is. So there weren't... <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> or no. Yeah. Um, but in any case, there was an actual river, the Tiber River, that ran in front of the castle. And, um, and it was a very swampy area. So uh, there wasn't housing in Washington City for people mm. to just you know, ordinarily live in. There were rooming houses, um, things like that, but it, it just wasn't a developed city. So, um, so the castle was probably one of the safer places where... Um, Joseph Henry and his family could live. Well, that's great. So along those lines, one of our audience members asks, what are the most fascinating presidential documents that is held at the library? Well, we don't have presidential documents. Uh, they are at the National Archives, uh, which has presidential papers. The first... Um, uh, I can't remember how many presidents' uh, papers are actually in the Library of Congress, but then when the National Archives was built, um, then they started going there. So we don't have presidential papers, manuscripts. Um, we talked a little bit about the African American Museum. Mm -hmm. um, and again, another question is, have you ever thought about a museum devoted for women? With <laughs> oh, women's topics? Yes, we have. <laughs> Uh, just about every year for quite a few years, there has been legislation uh, offered in Congress for a National Museum for Women. Um, it hasn't yet gone anywhere, but you never know. And we need to have more women in Congress so they could vote that in, I oh, guess. Huh? It could yeah. happen. <laughs> There is a national muse or, uh, museum of women in the arts in Washington, so uh, and that is a very popular museum. Yeah, 
Yeah, I would think so. Um, now, when during the government shutdown, the Smithsonian had to shut down, right? You bet. So could you talk a little bit about the funding for the Smithsonian? Well, the Smithsonian did have to close because um, 65% of the um, staff of the Smithsonian are federal. But the rest are what we call trust employees, and they're paid from the proceeds of the Smithsonian Endowment, the original bequest and how it has grown over the years. And uh, the trust employees were... uh, were supposed to continue to work, and they did. Uh, but they meant some. A lot of us teleworked because I did go into uh, the museum one day, uh, and there was just wasn't anybody there, and it was so spooky. <laughs> I, I decided that I would telework like everybody else was doing. Um, and so uh, there was a lot of still of activity and a lot of work happening during the shutdown. But the federal employees were instructed not to work and not to use um, social media, not to use yep. read email, and not to do anything. Now, whether they followed those rules or not uh, is something I couldn't say. Uh, but it it was not easy, and of course the problem is they weren't getting paid, right. and so until right. uh, it was hard on a lot of the staff uh, whose salaries weren't uh, generous, let's say. Right, right. So um, if a portion is is funded by the government, then you get donations from everybody else. Right. Families. We're about sixty five thirty five ratio of government funding to uh, private funding. And of course, uh, two years ago, we completed our first ever comprehensive fundraising campaign, where the uh, Smithsonian raised over $1.7 billion to fund its its operations. And uh, we were part of that. And we happily uh, raised about $11 million. Now, a lot of that money is in um, bequest forms, so it isn't that we're going to realize all that money immediately. But uh, it was nice to know that um, the people uh, in the nation were willing to support the Smithsonian, as, as I always say, it belongs to the people. It's it's the nation's museum, um, and uh, I'm biased, of course, but I always feel like um, that we deserve that kind of support because we're open to the nation free, free, free. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. That's great. Um, and so the families, I, somebody mentioned here that the Sackler family has been very generous to the Smithsonian. Um, yeah. Today's public is very much aware of oh, yeah. their funding. So how do you guys control something like that? Well, the branch, as, as I understand it, the branch of the soccer family that um, supports us is not the branch that was uh, dealing ah, with there the you go. opioid uh, Issues. crisis. But nevertheless, the institution um, is not accepting money from the Sacklers, Sacklers right now. So waiting for, you know, the whole issue to sort itself out. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, Another question, are all the collections in English? Well, no, Uh, but I would say that they're predominantly in English. Uh, I mean, if, if you think how we're serving primarily the Smithsonian staff, that is our first and primary constituency. So by and large, the collections are in English, but we do have uh, other languages in some areas as well, particularly um, in the library that is supporting the um, Freer Gallery of Art and the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery, which are Asian uh, museums, and so they have big collections in Japanese and Chinese and um, 
and other Oriental languages. Yeah, that's great. Um, has any thought been given to establishing a DNA collection? In other words, notable people, species, you've got your um, viruses and parasites. Not for humans. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly the, for animals, there is uh, there's genomic, um, there's a whole genomic program. Oh, for that. Yeah. So it is something that uh, the institution is working on in a research yeah, capacity. That's great. That's great. Um, so I had the same question that another person has raised. Since uh, you're with the Smithsonian and your husband's at the Library of Congress, what kinds of things do you talk about at the dinner table? <laughs> and you know, they've been married 46 years, which is just fabulous. You, uh, well, you would not be surprised, but we're asked that question a lot. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> we have lots of other interests. <laughs> um, and so, um, but, you know, we're both in the field and in the profession, and so there's lots to talk about in terms of what's going on in our, uh, each of our agencies, um, as well as... Um, you know, what we do, what our days are like. Uh, we're in very different fields. John is, um, is uh, as now the historian, but for uh, quite a few years, he was the director of the Center for the Book in the Library of Congress. And that was a program that promoted books and reading and literacy and the printed word. So he was... Um, building state centers for the book in all 50 states and developing programming that could be used by all over the country and uh, visiting a lot of those states a lot of the time as well as being one of the founders of the National Book Festival that takes place on the cap in the capital now in inside it used to be on the mall but now it's um, indoors in the convention center so um, so he was doing all that, and of course I was a dyed-in-the-wool administrator, so uh, we were really worrying about very different things. So that's what you're talking about at the dinner table? <laughs> <laughs> Librarianship covers a huge uh, yeah. number of things, and it's a big profession and an interesting one. But we talk about lots of other things. Okay, okay. Well, I think after being married 46 years, you would. <laughs> um, what do you want your audience to take away? Um, Nancy's going to be appearing in uh, San Diego uh, this, in next month, and you've got another talk in, in, oh, in two days, two days, Wednesday, and another talk in New, New York. York. Yeah. What are you hoping people take away? From, um... Well, one of the big things is that I want people to understand that there is a Smithsonian Libraries embedded in the institution, and even if when you visit you can't see it and you're not aware of it, uh, there's no exhibition or publication or activity the Smithsonian does that the Libraries is not contributing to and supporting. Um, we are the main information resource of the Smithsonian. Um, that's why they stuck us in the center of that star. And um, I think it's important for people to know that the Smithsonian does have uh, this kind of resource in the institution. Uh, and, of course, I would be very remiss if I didn't say that we, um, we also would like to feel supported by the sure. people who support the Smithsonian in general. So um, so I'd, I'd like people to th remember that they can come to the Smithsonian digitally, come to the Smithsonian libraries digitally, and, um, and enjoy what you can see there, that it's relevant to you, as I said in my talk, and that there's a lot that goes on that you can enjoy right here in San Francisco. Um, and then, of course, we want you all to come to Washington and see it for yourself, because um, I think you would be very amazed at uh, what is there that belongs to all of you. It's part of your cultural heritage. 
and I will put in a plug for their magazine. I was looking at it online, and um, it's amazing what you guys cover in that magazine, and there are even current topics. Oh, yes. Uh, it's, it's interesting that the that? magazine doesn't really um, pull from the Smithsonian itself very much, um, even though the articles are often relevant to something in the Smithsonian, but they use a lot of freelance uh, authors. I got on them at one point saying, you know, they had a big article about a rare book that we have in our collection. They didn't even mention that in the article. So I, uh, I called up the editor and said, now look, (laughs) uh, you really need to remember that the name of the magazine is Smithsonian, and then you need to keep making those connections. References. Well, today's article... It's a great magazine. It is a great magazine, yeah. (laughs) You know, today's article was about if um, Thanos, you know, in the Avengers, um, if he really clicked and wiped out half of life, how would earth fair afterwards and it was a great article about what would end up happening um, to the world Mm -hmm. um, and how many of the microbes and the parasites would go away which would end up destroying earth yeah so anyway it was a fascinating apocalypse yes it was it was (laughs) fascinating um as the smithsonian institutions there's the smithsonian journeys the air and space museum the smithsonian channel the store the books How are they all connected, and how does that... Is it the secretary at the top that determines who gets what in terms of funding and support? Well, uh, definitely he has an influence on anything that happens. We also have a section called Smithsonian Enterprises, which is the organization that operates all of the, um, the commercial side of the institution, the... the, um, IMAX theaters, the um, publications uh, that are produced by the Smithsonian, anything that's sold uh, is usually operated through the Smithsonian Enterprises units. So um, that's, as I said, is the commercial side. And uh, they operate the... um, anything that you have to buy a ticket for, basically... Um, goes through Smithsonian Enterprises. So how big is the budget? Of the Smithsonian? Yeah. Um, Well, it's just reached over a billion. Okay. Wow. Wow. So if you think about that, 65% is funded by the government, Mm -hmm. and 35% is from individuals. It's from very generous, I should say, individuals who realize that this... uh, this does belong to the people and that it's providing a service for the whole nation. Um, it's said that sometimes people visit the Smithsonian when they come with their parents, when they're little kids, they come with their school groups uh, who visit, at least if they're on the East Coast, and um, and then they come with their grandparents so that people, those would be the three touches. Um, I'm hoping they'll come a lot more often, uh, but if not to Washington, then to the affiliate museums that are out in the country because they're equally important and um, need to be supported. In fact, I usually tell people when I'm have my fundraising cap on, Um, that, of course, we want you first to support your local schools, your churches, your um, synagogues, and and all of the things that touch you individually as a person, your school, your college. But then, when you think about what's important to America... Think about the Smithsonian, because uh, when you're ready to support something on the national level, um, I'd like to think that we would be in the list that you would be thinking about. Well, you know, earlier backstage we were talking a little bit about how um, many people no longer trust government or big businesses, and finding the truth is hard. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about trust with respect to the Smithsonian and libraries? This is a big issue for our current 
current secretary, David Scorton, who was a university president before he came to the Smithsonian. And he's written in, um, he actually often writes in the USA Today, but uh, he talks about how libraries and museums are still the trusted um, organizations in America, and that gives us a great responsibility to be authentic in terms of what we produce and to be accurate. And um, But it also, I should think, give the American people a feeling that they can trust institutions like libraries and museums and that um, uh, that we are providing an extremely valuable uh, cultural enterprise for people in the in America and as far as the Smithsonian goes also around the world right right so the, we don't have any Smithsonian libraries outside of domestic United States, right? It's, it's all oh, no, we, contained? Oh, no, we have one in the Republic of Panama. Uh, okay. <laughs> and that's because the Smithsonian has a tropical research institute in the Republic of Panama. And so we have a library there. It's arguably the best science library in Central America um, and is, in fact, the only one of our libraries that has its own building that says library on it. <laughs> but it's in Panama, so we can't make much use of it uh, in Washington. But uh, I was just there recently uh, with some of my board members who are here tonight. Thank you for coming. And... Um, and we got to see up close and personal some of the research that's done there and how the library uh, supports that research. So it's, um, it's just, the Smithsonian is a place where you never get bored. And I used to think that I was a five-year person, that I could only last somewhere for five years before I needed to move on. Move on. Well, I've been at the Smithsonian now for 34 years. Wow, that's fabulous. That's great. And I would be happy to stay another 34 if I could. <laughs> so what's the most exciting collection to you right now? I mean, you talked about the biodiversity, but beyond that, what, what is it that you could go to every you day? You keep putting me on the spot here. <laughs> Because there are so many different things. Working at the Smithsonian, though, you, you begin to realize after a while that unless you make a huge effort to get out of your office, things come to the Smithsonian and leave the Smithsonian, and you never got to see it, whatever it was. Um, one of the things I enjoy the most, though, is the um, photography exhibit that comes every year. It's a prize winning exhibit of, um, of uh, natural history of um, uh, animals um, that uh, wildlife photographers have taken. And they, they're huge pictures. Often they could be, you know, some of them four by six on the wall. Uh, fabulous things. And that is one of the most enjoyable exhibits I think that uh, I make a huge effort to go and see every time it comes. And do they rotate around the country, or do they just stay in that one? Uh, it's a temporary exhibit, okay. so um, and I don't know whether it actually goes. Uh, I do know that our natural history librarian, being a very um, outgoing person, managed to capture some of those photographs for her library uh, so that we can still enjoy them. Okay, great. That's wonderful. So we only have time for one more question. Um, when the Smithsonian receives a rare botanical or otherwise scientifically related volume, who decides whether it goes in the library collection or the museum collection or the natural history museum? I mean, how do you make that decision of where it goes? Um, the, uh, there is what we call a Smithsonian directive, which is our version of sort of the rules and regulations. And it, um, it says that any volume coming into the institution 
goes to the library. So it doesn't mean that there aren't departments and units that have things squirreled away. Uh, <laughs> it's just the kind of place we are. Uh, but um, That's part of the secret, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but they generally come to us. And, and one reason, and this is something... Um, I had to do at one point when I was trying to gather in all of the rare books in the uh, Natural History Museum, and there were many out in the departments on um, various uh, uh, methods of security. Uh, and I actually had to go around once we had our official rare book room that had a climate-controlled vault and um, gather those in. And at, at one time, I went to one of the department heads, and I said, um, I've come to collect your books. And this was after several weeks of their saying no. And so I went up, and he said, well, here's the key. <laughs> and so we got them. Um, but but we had the space for it, and we had the climate control for it. And so I think now there's no question about um, our ability to safeguard the collections and also to make them visible and useful and accessible uh, to anybody who needs to use them. Well, that's the exciting part, right? Because the Smithsonian is, is really for us. It is. And for us to be able to act, access. So thank you again, Dr. Nancy Gwynn, Director of the Smithsonian Libraries. We also thank everyone here, as well as our audience on the radio, television, and the Internet. I'm Evelyn Dilsaver, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank <laughs> you.